0: today's program is brought to you by mofad the museum of food and drink for more information visit mofad.org i'm michael ameko from food talk you're listening to heritage radio network broadcasting live from bushwood brooklyn if you like this program visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more Good afternoon and welcome to the first episode of Why Food. I'm your host Patrick McAndrew and in this series we're going to be speaking with multi-talented individuals who have swapped their careers for their passion and sought success and fulfillment in the food industry and I'm so happy to have Martha Hoover here with me today who has totally done that. Um, Thank you very much for being here, Martha.
1: Thank you for having me. It's always wonderful to be back in Brooklyn. I was actually born here, if you can believe that.
0: What part of Brooklyn were you born I was
1: born in Williamsburg, and my parents, however, hold on, I'm not truly a New Yorker. Um, My parents, when I was three months old, moved to Texas, Um, so I, I grew up mostly in Texas, but have always had family here and maintained relationships with them and i still have a daughter who lives i have a daughter who lives in manhattan so i love being in new york but it's particularly wonderful to be in brooklyn
0: but you're still one of those people who's able to know what the old williamsburg was like compared exactly. to exactly
1: it's changed i can tell you that <laughs> yeah
0: so i'm told I'm, I'm unfortunately i've only ever seen the new williamsburg but
1: well be- i i can understand the nostalgia but i also think the change is wonderful really yeah
0: So you're from Indianapolis.
1: I am from Indianapolis. That's where I live.
0: And can you give us a little bit of a background as to your life in Indianapolis and where it's taken you before you got into the food industry?
1: Well, for the most part, I grew up in Indianapolis and attended college in Indiana, went to Indiana University. And after college, I went to law school. Um, But I was one of those people that went to law school. It was a bit of a default education. I had no great desire to be the next Perry Mason or a really important corporate lawyer. I just didn't quite, when I graduated in the 70s, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, I thought that law school would give me three years to really think it through. And it was an amazing opportunity. I loved, I was one of the few people who can say, I loved law school. I loved the challenge of it. I loved the people I met and I love the opportunities it brought to me. My favorite opportunity it brought to me is that's where I met my husband. He was a third-year student when I was a first-year student. Um, We've been married 35 years. We have three children, all adult, and uh, at least in theory, out of the house, and a bunch of dogs and chickens and goats, and a wonderful life in Indianapolis, Indiana. Indianapolis, for those who have never been there, um, is a sports capital. Um, it's a we've got a culture that's very, very sports driven with our professional basketball players and football players and auto racing. But what it also is is the capital of Indiana. It's the largest city in Indiana. And Indiana is a beautiful agricultural state. So we really, historically, Indiana is a farm state. Um, so when I was a child, kind of linking back to this Brooklyn thing, we would go, a couple times a year around, I'm Jewish, we would go back to Brooklyn for the Jewish holidays. Um, And that was from both from Texas when I was living in Texas as a younger girl and then as I was a little bit older and we moved to Indiana from Indiana. And I remember very vividly um, a very particular experience that I had where my father and I walked to the neighborhood, the corner produce stand in Brooklyn, not far from my grandmother's house, and he—it must have been a, a early fall. It was probably a late August or something like that, around whatever those holidays are, because my father saw what was labeled a Decker melon, and he said to me, "Oh my gosh, look at that! That is a Decker melon." I had no idea. I was probably ten. I had no idea what a Decker melon was, so I asked him. It was—I also remember it was very expensive. And he said that a Decker melon was a melon that came from a county in Indiana, Decker County. And it struck me as really odd, even though I was 10, I was just taken with the fact that I was from Indiana. I knew it was a farm state. I had never tasted a Decker melon, yet I came to Brooklyn and saw on the corner a Decker melon. I thought it was remarkable. So it, that kind of started this turn in my brain on the importance... Of food, and I didn't really understand why, if this melon was so special that it was in New York, it wasn't special enough that we were eating it in Indianapolis. Um, and it just kind of began. That was really one of those pivotal moments that made me start looking at food a little bit differently.
0: That ignited your curiosity. It totally food. did. It yeah. really
1: did. Very simply put. You know, I grew up in a family that my parents were New Yorkers, loved it, had huge New York pride. My father was from the Bronx, my mother from the Brooklyn. From Brooklyn, um, and they really made me believe from a young age that the best food in the world, even the best food that was grown in Indiana, because I hope that everyone has a chance to experience this. There is nothing, for instance, like an Indiana tomato, the most incredible tomatoes, but They made me believe that the best food, even those gorgeous tomatoes, really were shipped to markets that were much more food savvy than we were in Indiana. So the best food in the world went to New York and Paris and maybe San Francisco back when I was growing up. Um, And I truly just didn't get that. I was like, why don't we have this opportunity to share in this bounty, this incredible bounty, That these larger and more incredible markets have. It was very, it was kind of perplexing to me at a young age.
0: So, back then in your early days, you had this curiosity and this association with food. And you mentioned how you went to law school, but it, I suppose, it didn't ignite that fire that food almost did, but you still pursued it. You still went ahead with law.
1: Yeah, and I was one of these people. um, I, I think, you know, it's so many people in the restaurant world that you come to restaurant life circuitously, and I did come to it circuitously, as interested as I was in food, it was not, I mean, I'm talking 45 years ago, food was not as, food is true currency now, you know, it's got tremendous acceptability across the board. When I was growing up, to be in the food world really meant that you were in a service industry, and being in a service industry did not have the cachet, the positivity that it carries with it today. So, for someone saying, I want to go to, you know, going to college and then saying, I want to work as a server, probably didn't happen. Most restaurants, most restaurant personnel kind of did it very similar to how I got to law school. It was more of a default profession as opposed to a very Um, you know, a a very uh, razor sharp, this is what I want to do with my life. There's so much acceptability surrounding being in food right now, which I think is so incredibly exciting. However, when I was young and got to really uh, start questioning my relationship with food and uh, in between my my high school graduation and when I first went to college, I went to France and stayed with the family. And it, it another one of those transformative periods of my life where I saw marketing differently, I saw farming differently, I saw food preparation differently, and it really changed. And I wasn't someone who said, I want to move there and have that life. I, instead, I said, I want to go back and have that life. I want to be in Indianapolis. So after law school, I I happened to be one of the very fortunate. I think it went with my kind of Pollyanna positive personality. Um, I love law school. I had opportunities that I kind of fell into my lap that I didn't really think about. And I took advantage of the opportunities. And one that was probably most critical was I worked for Uh, as a deputy prosecuting attorney in Marion County, Indianapolis. Indiana is uh, in in Marion County. And I was part of the team that created the second sex crimes unit in the United States. So I always had these very, very purposeful jobs when I worked in in the area of law, but I was never particularly passionate about being a lawyer. Um, I was always the person, however, who brought the best salads to an office pitch in, the best cookies. I was really, uh, I I was so, I curated dinner parties. I loved cooking. I would read cookbooks. I honored everything Julia Child ever did. For my 21st birthday, my parents gave me a set of these time-life cookbooks of the world that I still have today and consider to be masterpieces. so, you know, it was always the food that made me that made me kind of resonate with everything around me as opposed to the law. I was very proud of the work that we were doing um, advancing the rights of women and children with the sex crimes unit. It was a completely unheard of area of the law back in the 70s. So we were doing something that was really radical. But I worked for somebody. I worked for the the prosecutor I worked for was a guy named Steve Goldsmith, um, and he's now at Harvard in the JFK School of Public Policy. Uh, it was a brilliant leader, and the reason why he was brilliant is he taught me early on that he taught me how to be radical. He taught me that if something wasn't working and wasn't good, there was no reason to repeat it. And... After I left the prosecutor's office, once I started having my own children, I was for a very brief period, I was a stay-at-home mother, I really thought that the restaurant industry as it existed in 1989, the year I opened up my first restaurant, I really thought it needed some radicalization. I thought it needed some fresh ideas.
0: And just to bring you back to that, because we're going to touch now on when you opened up in your old vision from then on. But- it must have been quite a humbling experience because if you think about it, in the eighties in Indiana, the restaurant scene wasn't bubbling. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a place that people would travel to to go and eat at. Like you said, it was very much a service industry. So you had gone from being a lawyer in quite a res- in a very respected profession and something that you had done that was unique in, within the country, and you know, more so than possibly now. Back then, when somebody was a lawyer, was in a hugely respected position, especially in amongst your town. How did it feel to leave that behind and to say, I'm going to leave whatever privilege that that provides me to go and open up a restaurant where I'm going to have to get stuck in. It's going to be hard work. It's not going to be moving papers around and it's not going to be turning up to court. It's going to be a much, I suppose, grimier job than it would have been to to have been dressed in a suit every day.
1: Yeah, you know, I didn't, I I did not really enjoy the so-called privilege of being a lawyer, um, I And I, I know we use these words, passion, I, that I wasn't passionate about it. I, I just felt like I was not accomplishing anything for myself that I wanted to accomplish. I was so interested in food, and I saw that there was such a void, especially because there were no restaurants that where I could take my children and feed them the kind of food made from the kind of ingredients that, that I would be making at home. And I really figured I was not a very unique person. So if I was feeling this way, there certainly were other people in the city who were feeling this way. But specifically, your the point I think your point is really great. You know, the way that people thirty years ago treated people in the service industry and thought of people in the service industry. Um, it was very different than the way it is today, and it's still not—it's still not like incredibly perfect. Chefs
0: and restaurateurs are almost celebrities in New York yeah, City. Oh you know, my God! You know. I,
1: I was at the Bon Appetit event last night, and you know, with the the TV chefs walked in, the the seas parted. I, I was just amazed by it. Um, but I come from an old school. There was a a chef in Indianapolis named an Italian man who owned a very fine Italian restaurant, no longer in business. His name is J.P. Moraldo. And I will never forget, he said to me in his very thick Italian accent one day, that I worked like an Italian immigrant. And he meant that as a huge compliment. And you know what? I took it as a huge compliment. I have never, ever minded. In fact, I have more pride about being in the service industry and serving other people whether it's customers or vendors or community or staff, whoever I'm serving, I truly have more pride about being in the service industry than I ever had about being a lawyer. And that's about as simply put as I could say it.
0: One thing I want to commend you on is when I moved to New York from Ireland, I heard all this talk about farm to table. Now, it's very explanatory in itself, but I'd come from Ireland where you go top to bottom, you can get there in two and a half hours. you're you're the only place you're going to get your food is from the closest person to you. So farm-to-table isn't a term in Ireland. It is what it is. That's just how it happens. Obviously, you can buy your food from wholesale producers at cheaper rates, but you know who's going to be getting that. The better quality food is coming from the farmers. Now, when I moved here, it was a hot topic. You know, all the good restaurants, it would be at the top of their description, a farm-to-table restaurant or a chef that focuses on farm-to-table cuisine. You did that in the late 80s. You... Yeah. You, you know, pioneered that in in Indiana when that never happened. Why, why, why did you decide not to buckle to what the market wanted? And why did you why did you have where did you get the braveness to to say I want to do what I want to do and I know people will come here and eat here?
1: Well, I appreciate the really nice compliment, but I have to be honest; I didn't see it as brave. Um, and farm to table as a phrase did not exist in 1989. Uh, and I don't know how that can... I don't know where the attribution... I don't know who first used that. I have a sense that so many restaurants today greenwash, they kind of farmwash. They they use that descriptor to say what they are. And they really aren't farm-to-table. Um, I We started buying ingredients from day one from farmers around Indianapolis. Um, and the reason I did it is because that... Those were the ingredients that tasted the best to me. Those were the ingredients that were the freshest that I could find. You know, when I first started, this is a really... It sounds almost... Um, this sounds very nostalgic and old-fashioned, and it really isn't. This happened when I first started. Before I opened the restaurant, I went around to the to the suppliers in Indianapolis and introduced myself, and not only was I... Um, got into a business, I had zero... I opened up my first restaurant without having ever worked in a restaurant. Um, I'd never waited table. I'd never been a hostess. I wasn't trained as a chef. So, of course, I had zero credibility coming into the restaurant business. And I also opened my first restaurant not knowing that I was pregnant with my third child. So all of these things that should have held me back especially in a competitive environment. Even in 1989, the restaurant world was incredibly competitive. Those were the things that really made me successful because I was able to look at the restaurant world and the food world with totally naive and fresh eyes. And one of the naive and fresh things I did was I actually had relationships with farmers. I tried doing it the way that I thought I was supposed to do it. I went, for instance, to uh... suppliers of meat meat suppliers and i told them that i wanted this is just one example that i wanted to roast fresh turkeys every day so our turkey sandwiches could be actually turkey that was sliced off the breast off the bone um, and they all laughed at me and said no one does that like that you just use this processed turkey it's all you have to do and i was ah, i don't want to do that that's not my goal my goal isn't to do it the way everyone else does it my goal is to do it the way I I want to do it because I want to serve a certain quality of food, and that's really what started it. So, I'm very proud right now. Uh, in 2016, Potashu supports more. My company Potashu supports more family farms in the state of Indiana than all the other restaurants in Indianapolis combined. We have relationships with 37 and growing uh, farmers and farms. We have um, Uh, We can tell every ingredient. We can tell a customer every ingredient that's on our menu and where it comes from, and not in that silly Portlandia way. I mean, we're really, really sincere about it and have a historic relationship with most of our farmers, and I'm very proud of that.
0: And on the end of those wonderful credentials, mentioning (laughs) your business, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about your empire. Thank you. This is Peter Kim, the Executive Director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. We just opened MOFAD Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami. And the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. And welcome back to Why Food. I'm here with Martha Hoover, and we're getting back into your industry, Martha. So, if you could tell us a little bit more about when you started with Cafe Patisserie and how it expanded into the business that you have today. First of all, will you please let the listeners know how many restaurants you have at the moment in Indianapolis?
1: I have 11 restaurants in Indianapolis and soon to be 12. Um, very proud of the way the community has supported my company, um, and we are we now have a, a 350 employees. And um, I have Café Parachu, which is a breakfast and lunch restaurant. We have four of those locations. I have Petit Chu, which is a little French bistro. We have Nepalese, which is an authentic, uh, Neapolitan-style pizzeria. Um, and a restaurant called Public Greens, which I think is incredible. It's an urban cafeteria associated with our micro farm, our on-site micro farm. And that restaurant, Public Greens, has two things that are really unique to it. Um, Number one, 98% of the items served on that menu, 98% of the ingredients going into the creation of the items served on the menu are 100% local. Um, And we define local within to be raised or grown within a couple of hours of Indianapolis. We have our own farm that, are, that uh, we own and control for Public Greens as well. And then the, the thing that I think is most unique about Public Greens is 100% of the profits of Public Greens go or directly funneled to a foundation that my company started three years ago called the Pottershoe Foundation. And the Pottershoe Foundation's goal, mission, is to feed food insecure children in our community. And if I could just for one quick second, uh, you know, people always assume that you're from a farm state, there is no issue with getting food. Sadly, Indianapolis is in the bottom couple of cities, major cities, with with the largest amount of food insecurity and food access issues. 87% of the children who attend the Indianapolis public school system live with daily food insecurity. So that was just a statistic that we just could no longer live with. And we thought that we needed to not only feed children, but we needed to feed them a quality of food, that high-quality food, the food that we're eating and that we sh- I'm serving my family and my customers, should really not be limited to those who are fortunate enough to live in certain zip codes. I feel very strict about I'm very, very sure about that, that food access is not just feeding people the most, uh, it's more than just feeding people calories, it's feeding people the right kind of foods. So what we decide to do is not just feed children this really wonderful food uh, made from from scratch, made from great ingredients, but that we also wanted to connect the kids with the food that they're eating Um, and hopefully encourage the real change of, of habits So that when a child is faced with eating a bag of potato chips or an apple, they would automatically choose the apple because of what they've learned about food, nutrition, and the connection to uh, a healthy life and what. So that's what we do with the foundation.
0: That's an incredible, that's an incredible initiative. Thank you. And you're very candid about it. Uh, You are, because I listened to another interview where you spoke about how you had set up this initiative. But it was very much reflective of yourself um, and you know what you had done for this. Whereas you saw it as a whole team effort, you know what the business had done, and you wanted to reflect that more so, so that the people who were involved got the acknowledgement for it, the work that they had put put in to help with the Patashu Foundation.
1: Yeah, you know, um, every even in our early days, um, Patashu always thought about its community, and we have always had in our company's DNA. Um, a giving gene. you know we we've always done we've always written checks and done things for the community. Um, and as the company became larger and more profitable, our giving to the community became larger. Um, but at the end of every giving cycle, I would sit back and go, number one, have we really improved anyone's life with all the money that we've tried to give away over the years? Have we really changed anything? Um, and number two, Does my staff, are they connected to this at all? Because let's face it, if it weren't for them, my company wouldn't be successful. And I got all the credit for writing the checks, and they didn't get the credit. And I really thought that was insanely unfair. I have staff that comes in at 3 in the morning to, to start our baking. I have staff that stays until 11 and 12 at night. They deserve, all of them deserve the credit for the success of the company, not just me. So the idea of the foundation came along because I thought that not only was there this huge need in our community, but there was a need in our company too. Um, And what has happened is we have a large volunteer base. We have 140 volunteers. About 35% of those volunteers are actually team members of the company. Um, Actually, one of our we, we had somebody who was in our management training program who at orientation heard a little bit about the Pottershoe Foundation and he basically raised his hand and said, I, I love the company. I want to be with the company, but I really think the best use of my ability is to work for the foundation. He's now, his name is Matthew Feltrop, and he is now our executive director of our foundation. And he has grown the foundation from feeding at one one feeding site, feeding 30 children right now. We're feeding six. We do 650 meals a week, and we will be expanding that by the end of the year to a thousand meals a week. So yes, it you know you hear that saying it takes a village. It really does. It takes a village to run a restaurant. It takes a a village to do a lot more than um, just run the restaurant. And we really feel very very sincere in that we owe a lot to the community that we're in. And we need to help the community as much as possible. And this was our way of doing
0: it. Well, you've an, you have an incredible ethos, but more importantly than have an incredible ethos. I think it comes down to the fact that in many, many hospitality groups, especially to have an empire of restaurants like 11, for the most part around the world, they're owned by men. There's very few women who have gone to own 11 restaurants. But what you've done? and i think this is the touch of being a woman that you have a far more empathetic empathetic touch you're not interested in seeing the empire grow for your own egocentric needs you're interested in seeing it grow and seeing what it can do that obviously is your ethos with food you know how it can help others because eating as we are here in robertism we can see it's 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 a social thing it's to help others there's one other person, probably as a restaurateur, I think Jamie Oliver comes to mind with what he does with his restaurants. He merges the profit and the growth of the restaurants and his hospitality group and his business to run side by side with what he can do to help others so that it's a twofold It's a twofold operation. There's very few people that have done that. And has it been a struggle to, to, to run growth in terms of your restaurants, focusing on making sure that people come back, that the service remains the same, that the business is of a high caliber, and that you can also take those profits and give it to the people that need it the most that are that don't get to enjoy the food that you provide.
1: You know, uh, several years ago, um, I had one of these. Uh, I don't know if you'll, if maybe you're too young to know the cultural reference to that Jerry Maguire moment. Yeah. And, the movie Jerry Maguire. would I'm sorry, what I
0: have to say I'm too young. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the, the, he has a moment in the middle of the night where he writes a bit of a manifesto um, That is that he wakes up in the morning and takes this huge manifesto to the business he's in, which is in some kind of a, can I say the word, douchebag on the radio? It's kind of a douchey business. And um, he of course he it falls on deaf ears no one cares about his manifesto i had one of those nights too i'm very fortunate because my manifesto meant a lot to my to my to the people who work with me and my manifesto we called the 2020 vision of the company and the 2020 vision of the company really really um it basically Says that we will be a radically different, we are building a radically different and a radically better company in five different areas. The first area is in our area of food sourcing. We're a restaurant business. We should be concerned first and foremost about our food sourcing. The second vision area is that we will become a radically different, radically better company. And by the way, this is every day. This isn't like we just said it 10 years ago and patted ourselves on the shoulder, we live this, we look at these vision points every day and say, are we accomplishing those The second one was that we would uh, be radically different and radically better in the area of customer experience. And we define com- customer experience way deeper than just the customer service, how a person is delivered, if food is delivered to the customer. It's much broader than that. The third area was that we would be radically different and radically better in our in our treatment of our staff and that we would have true growth opportunity for staff. And we defined that very differently as well. You know, it used to be very lockstep where someone would come in as a dishwasher and move into a line cook and a line cook to maybe a, a sous chef or whatever that position is or in the front of the house start as a host and then get to be a server and then maybe move up to management, we don't look at it lockstep at all. Um, And we recognize that each person in our our company has tremendous leadership abilities and that leadership is not just for the people at the top. The fourth area that we said we were really going to be set apart, we were going to be so different, is our relationship to sustainability. And we talk about our green initiative and our other green initiative, the first one being our uh, our relationship to the earth. Um, uh, we have a director of sustainability, someone who's got a master's in restaurant sustainability, and this is a serious position for the company. We also talk about financial literacy, um, and that's something that I would really promote internally. We have... Uh, what we call the Parashu Financial Literacy Workshop. Actually, I'm flying back on Sunday because we have one on Monday that starts. Not mandatory for our staff, their family members, their friends. Not mandatory for, for our staff members to take, but 40% of our staff takes these classes. Because really, the, the bottom line is, if they get power over their lives, the way to do that is to get power through your money and understand what your relationship is with money. So sustainability is huge for us, um, both financial and environmental. And then the fifth area that we decided that we would be fin- uh, s- radically better, radically different in is our relationship to our community. Um, and I think that's what you were talking about with Jamie Oliver. He totally understands that restaurants are part of an ecosystem, and the ecosystem is much larger than just the restaurant or a restaurant group or a restaurant company with, I don't care, 50 million locations, you're still part of a community, and you have to really honor that community and pay it back in real ways. Um, and not just by, you know, this whole thing, I'll, I'll mention this regarding, for instance, sustainability. So many restaurants, when you ask them, if you ask the owner, do you have a sustainability policy, they would say, absolutely, we serve all of our coffee in paper coffee cups. You know what? There's a lot more to being sustainable than serving one item in a paper coffee cup. And I think once you stop washing this and acting like with a broad brush that you're doing the right thing, when you kind of know, wink, wink, that you're not recycling, you're not composting, you're not even recycling the cork out of your wine bottles, that your to-go packaging is not truly recyclable or compostable, um, that you're not supporting local farms and really supporting them, um, then I, I think that as restaurateurs, we have a duty to do better and to step it up.
0: Well, I think that's the thing that a lot of people recognize, that now with people who have really been thought leaders and wanted to be best of class, they have done this. And the people below them have noticed that by doing that, customers will respond to it. So they do it almost to fit the bill of a trend. But it doesn't follow through in its real, authentic nature. And that's another thing I wanted to ask you, because you've done all these things that you've you've really become ahead of the crowd you know you 've done this first for so many different levels. Has there been anyone that you 've looked to for inspiration has there or have have you been so focused with your ambition and what you want to do and your ethos and what you want the company to stand for that it 's all kind of come from it 's all come internally that that 's where you 've sourced all all your ambition from
1: truly it has been internal we have I have been I, I have said since 1989, I can control nothing outside my own four walls. Therefore, I will do everything I can to control everything within my four walls. And, and that's what I do. I didn't realize until a couple of years ago, you know, living in Indianapolis, we're kind of separated and no one's really paid that much attention to us. Um, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago when I started getting some national attention that what we were doing was so unique. Um, I I wanted it to be, I wanted to create a company that truly was different and better. And that was my sole goal. I didn't really have another company that I looked in, in the restaurant business. I think there are a lot of amazing restaurant groups and a lot of incredible restaurateurs, But there wasn't one company that, who had a template that I thought we could use. We created our own template and it's worked for us. I actually think that it's a template that would work for other restaurants as well. Um, it's not hard to just say we have to be better. It's just not hard. I look at every day. I wake up and I we start the clock at zero and we say how are we going to be better today than we were yesterday. When my children were young and doing homework, I used to always say to them, you know, the difference between doing okay and doing really doing good and the difference between doing good and doing really well is probably 15 minutes a day. If you hit something harder for 15 more minutes, you're probably going to get to the next level. Well, in a way, that's how I've looked at my restaurants too. We just hit it harder every day, try to correct whatever mistakes were very, in a most human industry there is that I can think of right now there's still just one way for us to make our food and to serve the food, and that is with humans. We make mistakes. The idea is not to ignore the mistakes, but to truly learn about them, grow from them, and get much, much better so that the next time the same opportunities, the same issues transect in the world, we're not going to make a mistake. We're going to really do well.
0: Wonderful. Great, great ethos. And before we leave, I want to ask... As being a restaurateur, what has it given you since you got into the food industry?
1: Oh, my gosh. It's given me so much. First and foremost, the thing it's, and I really, really mean this, people who have, there are people who have been coming to Potashou since I opened my doors in 1989. The community support has been outrageous. Um, And I consider so many of my guests and so many of my staff to be part of my family. And I'm not just saying that in a cheesy way. I really mean that. What the restaurant industry has given me the most is the ability to act like my restaurants are my dining room in my own house. And that people who come in are my family and invited guests. And that is a really warm, wonderful feeling to be able to feed people every day. I love it. Um, I, I, can't, I couldn't see myself being in a different industry ever. And I just feel every morning when I wake up that I have truly won the job lottery. And uh, it's an incredible, it's been a great adventure for me. Um, and I think the restaurant industry has nothing but opportunity and potential for people. It's hardly a default industry. To me, it's something that's got so much purpose. And I really love the fact that my children included an entire generation of people who just are loving everything there is about food right now.
0: You're an incredible asset to the food industry. And I'm absolutely delighted that I had you on here today on Why Food. So thank you very much for coming, Martha.
1: Thank you, Patrick.
0: It's been a real pleasure. Um, you can tune in next week at Thursday at 2 p.m. If you want to catch this live, you can listen to it on heritageradionetwork.org or you can listen to it on iTunes. It's listed under y Food. Thank you very much. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.